First up today, a new economic consideration of this question. What responsibility do employers have for the mental health of their workers? Put it another way, how can workplaces do no harm? That well-used phrase in modern health settings in their daily duties of turning a profit or serving the public. Because there's increasing dismay at the growing challenge of mental health impacts and costs to workers and the economy. If current projections are correct, a doubling of compensation claims by 2030 is on the cards and time lost already at work is really quite startling. And I feel sure the Saturday Extra text line will uh, be replete with stories from people's experiences before long. Employers generally want to help, but they can end up implementing well-meaning but ultimately useless fixes. Well, the Committee for the Economic Development of Australia, CEDA, has decided to dive into this issue forensically and systematically to assess whether achievable circuit breakers might exist. The report's titled Mental Health and the Workplace, How Can Employers Improve Productivity Through Wellbeing? The author is senior economist Cassandra Windsor. Welcome, Cassandra. Hi, thanks for being here. The current cost of mental illness to the Australian economy is estimated to be $70 billion. I wonder if you could talk us through the three different cost scenarios that you map out in your report, trying to, I think, bring put a different lens on this discussion. So what we've seen is that mental health is really costing the Australian economy. That's through the workplace and also more broadly. And one component of this is actually the workers' compensation claims for mental health. So that's when there's a a direct link between the mental health condition that someone is having trouble with and the workplace. They, They might claim for workers' comp. And this has been rising at a pretty rapid rate in recent years. And what I think is particularly interesting about this is that actually overall workers' compensation claims have been falling. So physical health and safety has really been prioritised in workplaces in the last couple of decades. And we've seen the real impacts on that through falling workers' compensation claims. But mental health hasn't had that same prioritisation. And we're actually seeing increases in claims there. So If we kind of continued on the trajectory that we had in recent years, we actually think that workers' compensation claims could double again by 2030. And that's a pretty moderate kind of growth scenario that we're looking at. It could be slightly higher than that, particularly if maybe we get some of those impacts of COVID and and that might um, increase things there. You might also, if we do take some action, we might be up to reduce that. So what we're really calling for is for mental health in the workplace to be prioritised in the same way that physical health and safety is. In fact, a couple of figures quoted, we won't dwell upon them because they make people do despondent, but listeners might be a bit surprised. The median cost of mental health compensation claims, which sits at around $46,000, and that's gone up from 14000 in 2001, and the median time off work due to mental stress, which is six months. Have you been able to isolate the key causes of employee mental distress and illness? Look, it's pretty broad. So it might be stress and anxiety related to issues in the workplace. It might be bullying and harassment. But I think what we see with mental health claims is they're very complex. And that's why they have those very high dollar values to them. And also this kind of huge amount of time off work because it's very complex trying to work out what exactly has caused it and also how to treat it and get someone back to the workplace. 
And I think what's particularly interesting about those figures is how, again, how they compare to physical work health and safety claims. So you've got this, you know, nearly six months off for a mental health related claim. In comparison for a physical work health and safety compensation claim, the median time off is only seven weeks and the median cost of the claim is only around $15,000. And could we clarify, please, are you talking about pre-existing mental illness or something that is caused or exacerbated by the workplace? For a workers' compensation claim, it does have to be caused by the workplace. So there has to be a very clear link between the workplace and what's happened in the workplace and the, the illness that is requiring the workers' compensation for. But a lot of the things we're suggesting in this more preventative approach to mental health in the workplace will actually benefit everyone, whether they have a a pre-existing mental health condition or not. We also know that there's roughly three and a half million Australians with a mild to moderate mental health condition. And most of those will be in the workplace. And there's a lot of things that we can do to either prevent some of those conditions or to stop exacerbating it. So to stop workplaces causing more harm, which will increase productivity. Uh, You have a happier workplace um, and it's a good business investment. This might be someone who is on antidepressants, who's had an episode of depression or, you know, something approaching depression, or you might have somebody who's subject to sort of acute episodes of anxiety. That's the sort of thing you're talking about. Yeah, absolutely. So those those relatively moderate conditions, which absolutely impact on people's day-to-day lives, um, but they're certainly still able to go to work and with appropriate support and appropriate working conditions can actually really thrive in the workplace. So there's a lot can be done to help these people and also to help prevent any of these things as well, because people spend a lot of their lives in the workplace. They're really impacted by what's going on there. And the evidence shows that workplaces can do a lot to prevent mental health conditions and also for early intervention if something does come up. In your report, you say significant new investments are actually not needed, most likely anyway, but that doing it better is strongly linked to organisational and managerial skills development. Can you develop that, please? So on the managerial skills, what's incredibly clear from the research is that relationship between an employee and their line manager is really vital to positive mental health outcomes for the employee. So being able to have a really open relationship with their manager, being able to tell them if there's any problems, but also knowing that that manager has the capacity to change things if required and to help people. I totally understand that not everyone just kind of naturally has those managerial skills, but there's some fantastic training out there that's relatively inexpensive. It's already been developed. It's been evaluated. Um, Some particularly good training um, done by the Black Dog Institute that really teaches managers how to deal with an employee if they think that employee might have a mental health issue. So particularly around the confidence of managers and making them feel like they can ask an appropriate question of their employee, find out what's going on. It's not to make them, you know, amateur psychologists or Mm. counsellors, but just to identify when an employee might need support and feel confident and comfortable doing that. And some fantastic evidence that having managers with those skills who've gone through those training programs really leads to much better outcomes for the employee but also for the business as a whole. So people take less sick leave, they're more productive, they're more committed and and they're really engaging in the workplace. Is there a difference between the private and the public sectors? 
Look, I think these sort of things relate to really any sector. Obviously, things will be different depending on what kind of sector they're working in and, and what kind of the role is that people have. But those core managerial skills are pretty universal. And if you've got managers that understand and are confident talking to their staff and able to get support when required, you're going to see a lot of great improvements for people. What about this job design? An overlooked tool, you say, to manage mental health in the workplace. What are some of the best design features for positive impacts? Maybe I could ask you that way. A job that's really mentally healthy is often when someone has relatively high levels of control over what they're doing. So they have some autonomy over their work tasks. They have some autonomy over the working hours and some flexibility there. And they're also given the appropriate training and resources to do their job properly. So they're not feeling like they're out of their depth. How that plays out will depend very much on what the actual role is and and what the employee is doing. But there are elements of that that I think almost any job can, you can have a look at where you can tweak things to just Mm. make it that little bit more mentally healthy for employees. One of the recommendations I see is, quotes, provide mental health literacy training to a broad group of employees. (laughs) I must say, I thought, is this being forced to do yet another online module? (laughs) Yeah, look, I think we're all, we all get a bit sick of those, uh, you know, the annual compliance training. Um, and look, I think, again, this, that's one of the things. I think that the bigger things are more around that organisational culture and, and that management and that job design. But there is still this role for awareness. We have had quite a significant improvement in, in awareness of, of mental health conditions in recent years, which has been great. But we do know that one of the things that holds people back from getting help and particularly from getting help early is stigma. And that's where there is still that role around mental health literacy training. Um, there's often specific training programs that are badged as mental health first aid. And there's a few kind of similar things around like that. Um, so that's around that reducing stigma and giving people the opportunity to speak up early and to say they need help and not get judged by that. Cassandra, if we look at one of the case studies in the report, which focused on the construction industry, where the levels of depression, stress and anxiety exceeded the national norm by 37% and a pilot was conducted at the Mordialic Bypass Freeway project with employees from two construction companies. What did this project do to address worker wellbeing and what were the results for mental health and productivity? A really fantastic project and one thing that appeals to me from a project like this as a researcher is that they've evaluated it really well. So they took some baseline studies before they started implementing what they're calling their uh, integrated approach to wellness for the project Um, and they also did a follow-up evaluation. So they were actually able to track how the employees were feeling and, and the interventions that were done. It was really around making sure it was a really open and collaborative environment and setting those goals from that leadership level down. So leaders were demonstrating better behaviour around mental health, around work-life balance. They were really clear around culture, around bullying, harassment. And again, that aspect of awareness and stigma was another really big thing. So that people were really confident talking to each other and making mental health a priority every day. So they really incorporated it into every aspect of their project. And the outcomes were fantastic. Reduction in burnout, better work-life balance, reduction in stress and anxiety. And the other thing from a business perspective is it 
didn't impact on the business at all. If anything, it improved the productivity and everything kind of happened really well and on track. Because, I mean, there are some, some jobs that are inescapably high strain and they have high demands and low control. And there's sometimes why people go there. That's exactly what they want. They want an intense life. You'd think that was the worst possible scenario for worker mental health. But by the sound of you, even within that, if people have a sense of control of their own fate and I don't know, did they need to be appreciated? Is that another thing or not? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's part of that relationship with your manager as well. So getting that positive feedback and the construction industry in this example, it is one where in general, you don't have a huge amount of control over what you're doing. You're working to tight deadlines, specific tasks that need to be done. But I think what this example shows is that when you just give those people a little bit more control and engage them in the process. And I think that was really important in this project. The employees were engaged. It is tricky too, because at no point have you said what you often hear, particularly with the private sector people dealing with young people, they have loads of social engagements, social Fridays and Thursdays and money being thrown, quite frankly, at people. (laughs) You haven't mentioned that whole idea of a sort of sociability quotient at the workplace. There's certainly evidence that good relationships with your team and and social things in the workplace are, are positives for mental health. But I think they're only really positive if you get the basics right. So what people are doing every day in their workplace, and that's where that job design, that relationship with the manager and that organisational culture play into it. Once you've got all that right, you can throw all the extras at it, whether that's, you know, some fun social engagements, whether that's a free yoga class or a fruit box. They're all lovely perks. But in terms of actually impacts on mental health and well-being, it's those things that you deal with every day in your job that are more important. Look, before I let you go, I would imagine that supporting mental well-being for the growing numbers of casuals and contractors is a real problem and that surely will increase with more precarious employment. Do we know what works to make this section of the workforce better equipped? There's certainly a link between precarious employment and poor mental health. So that is one of these aspects of of job design that we know is um, pretty bad, really, uh, in terms of mental health outcomes. So certainly some issues there around, you know, what how can we better design casual jobs if people have a little bit more certainty over their hours, they know what's coming up. They're certainly likely to have better mental health outcomes as well. And I think it's looking at, you know, why is someone in a casual job? Is it you know, a uni student and maybe that suits them perfectly, they're probably not going to have too many mental health issues around that. If it's someone that's actually preferring full-time employment but for some reason can't actually get that, mm. then I think that's where the mental health outcomes are likely to be more severe. Mm. Okay, you've given us lots to think about. Thank you very much indeed for joining us. Thank you. Great to be with you. Cassandra Windsor, um, she's the Senior Economist at CEDAR, Uh, And you can go to the CEDAR uh, website if you want to have a, a good look at that. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.